Sometimes when life gets really busy and really complicated, it's nice to have someone who can cut through all the confusion and simply tell us what to do. I'm sure that most of us have been in that kind of situation at one time or another. We have so many things to do and so many things to get done that we're not even sure where to begin. When we are in the midst of that kind of confusing scenario, it is helpful to have someone just tell us what to do. As you probably know, God's Word does that for us in life. It has a way of simplifying life for us. It has a way of cutting through all the clutter and all the busyness, all the good things, all the demanding things to remind us of what's really important. We see an example of that in our text this morning. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 4, over near the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4, and please follow along as I read verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, Let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The letter of 1 Peter has a great deal to say about suffering and how to handle it. One of the things that is easy for us to do when we are suffering or going through a hard trial is to pull into ourselves and basically check out of life. That's not always the best way to handle our trials, our hard times, and our suffering. It's our natural reaction, but not the best way. If it is not physically impossible to do so, the healthiest way to handle our hard times is to keep moving forward in life. That's exactly what we see in this passage before us. Peter is writing to a group of believers who were suffering. It would have been easy for them to check out of life and to pull into themselves, so Peter gives them these words of encouragement. In essence, he tells them to keep moving forward and keep doing the things that God's Word describes as a part of the normal Christian life. There is nothing uniquely profound in this text except that God's truth is always profound. But there's nothing new in these verses because they talk about topics that are found throughout the New Testament. And the reason they are found throughout the New Testament is because they are so foundational and so important. With that in mind, let's consider this text together. And you'll notice as we do, the emphasis on the word one another. 
Peter says, have fervent love for one another, be hospitable to one another. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. That is clearly an emphasis in this paragraph. Notice verse 7, how he begins. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The first thing that Peter says in this verse is that the end of all things is at hand. Now, maybe when you hear that, you say, hold it. That was written almost 2,000 years ago, so it doesn't seem like the end is at hand. What does he mean? Well, the word end here doesn't refer to the stopping of time. It doesn't refer to the stopping of all things. It is a word that refers to the culmination or consummation of things. So Peter isn't saying that the end of the world is near. He is saying that the consummation of our Christian lives, which is our gathering together unto Jesus in the air, is near or it's at hand. That means it is imminent. And please remember, the word imminent does not mean soon. Obviously, it wasn't soon when Peter wrote it. We're 2,000 years later. It means at any moment. In other words, what Peter is telling us is that our gathering together unto Jesus could take place at any moment. And that is true. It could have taken place in Peter's era. It could take place in any moment. It could be within the next hour, the next day, the next week, the next month, or the next year. It could be in 10 years, or 20 years, or 50 years, or 100 years. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it could happen at any moment. That is why throughout the New Testament, we are always exhorted to be ready. Always. We don't know when it will happen. So we need to live in such a way that we are ready for whenever the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and gathers us to be with him. We need to be living our lives the right way so that we're ready for his return to gather us to himself. Obviously, that begs the question, what does living the right way look like? If we're supposed to be living the right way, waiting or anticipating our gathering unto him, what does living the right way look like? Well, Peter tells us here in this section. He gives us four exhortations, four imperatives to tell us how we ought to live. Number one, be serious in your praying. Love one another, that's number two. Be hospitable to one another, that's three. And minister your gift, that's four. Those are the four things we ought to be doing. Be serious in your praying, love one another, be hospitable to one another, and minister your gift. Let's look at each of these individually. The first thing Peter says here is be serious and watchful in your prayers. Peter uses two words in this verse to describe how we ought to pray. And these two words are translated in various ways in our English Bibles. No two versions are alike. The first word that Peter uses means to think sensibly. That's why it is translated, depending on your, your version, be serious or be clear-minded or be of sound judgment or be self-controlled. The emphasis of this word is on a clear-minded understanding about the importance of prayer and the proper focus of prayer. You see, the fact is, there are a lot of Christians who don't understand the importance of prayer, and they don't know what to focus on when they do pray. 
They don't take prayer seriously. For example, there are some Christians who believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God that they minimize the importance of prayer by saying, well, God is in control and he has a plan that will be carried out regardless. As a result of that theological perspective, they don't take prayer seriously. Isn't it interesting that some Christians would allow their theology to discourage them from praying when the New Testament has so much to say about the importance of praying? That's just one of the many things that can get in the way of us praying the way we ought to pray. Peter was well aware of the problems we have in this area of the Christian life, which is why he said that we need to be serious or clear-minded in our prayers. The second word he uses means to be watchful or sober-minded or alert. The emphasis is, is on being tuned in to what we ought to focus on when we pray. So when you put these two terms together... They stress the importance of making sure that we pray consistently and that we pray intelligently. That's the best way I know to summarize what Peter is saying here. That we pray consistently and we pray intelligently. Throughout the New Testament, we are exhorted to pray this way. In Luke 21, 36, Jesus said, Watch and pray always. Watch, that is, be alert so pray intelligently and pray always, that's consistently. In Acts 6, 4, the apostles gave themselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. In Romans 12, 12, Paul said, continue diligently in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18 says, praying always. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray without ceasing. Colossians 4, 2 says, continue earnestly in prayer or be devoted to prayer. This, as I'm sure you know, is a constant theme in the pages of the New Testament. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells two parables to illustrate this principle. And for me, at least, these two parables are somewhat mind-boggling, or at least stretching, to think that Jesus would use these parables to talk about prayer. Turn back with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. The third gospel account, Luke chapter 11. And look at verse 5. Here's the first story or illustration that Jesus used to emphasize prayer. Luke 11, 5. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, now here's the application that Jesus makes. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, and then Jesus draws this application. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, find. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Now, I don't know about how that hits you, but that's kind of shocking to me that Jesus 
uses this example and says, listen, the guy may not get up and give him something because they're friends, but he may just do it to get the guy off his back. And he says, so you need to pray in that way. Just keep knocking and keep asking. Jesus uses this story to compare our praying to God. And Jesus says in verse 8 that even if the man in bed won't grant the request of his friend because they're friends, he will grant the request just to get his friend to be quiet. That's the idea behind the old English word importunity. Just because of the nuisance, he'll finally give in. Then flip over to chapter 18 where there's another parable or story that is, at least to me, somewhat surprising Luke chapter 18, verse 1, says, Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Again, to me, it's somewhat astonishing that Jesus would use such a story to portray prayer. This unjust judge who gets petitioned regularly and finally says, to get this lady off my back, I'll give in and grant what she wants. And, and the Lord says, you know, that's the way you ought to pray. Just keep petitioning, keep asking. Because God's not like the unjust judge. He loves his own and will gladly answer. But Jesus is emphasizing the need for persistence in prayer. Sometimes when we really believe something will honor God and glorify Christ, we need to be persistent in requesting it in prayer. In 1540, Martin Luther's good friend and partner, Frederick Myconius, became sick and was going to die shortly. On his deathbed, he wrote a farewell note to his beloved friend Luther. The letter was written with a trembling hand in his final moments. Martin Luther received the letter and immediately wrote back. His letter contained these words. I command thee in the name of God to live. I still have need of thee in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying, this is my will, and may my will be done because I seek only to glorify the name of God. Sounds a little bit bold, doesn't it? If you think that's shocking, listen to this. One week later, Myconius recovered. He died two months after the death of Luther. That will really blow open your theology. But prayer has a way of doing that. There was a man in the church at Colossae who understood this kind of praying. His name was Epaphras or Epaphras. On your way back to 1 Peter, stop in Colossians chapter 4 for just a second. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 4. And look at this man's example. Colossians chapter 4, verse 
12. Paul writes and says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, here's the key phrase, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal, a great burden, a great concern for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Epaphras was a man who prayed with zeal and passion. The interesting thing about Epaphras was that not only did he continue in prayer, not only was he consistent in prayer, but he also knew what to pray for when he prayed. Notice, it says he prayed for the, for the believers to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. This is exactly what verse 2 of this chapter says we are supposed to do. Verse 2 says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it. Some versions say, watch, be alert. The word watch simply means to stay awake. Don't go to sleep while you're praying. Who hasn't been in a Bible study or prayer meeting when all of a sudden you hear someone snoring? We've all had that. In fact, one, one experience I'll never forget as long as I live is, this was a number of years ago, but one of our deacons uh, uh, was, and I'm obviously going to keep this anonymous, but one of our deacons was saying to us as a board, uh, elders and deacons, man, I just don't feel like we pray enough together. We need to pray together more, and, and let's organize a, just a leadership prayer meeting. We said, great, schedule it, we'll be there. So a night was picked the next week, I don't know what it was, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock or whatever, and so we, as many as could be there gathered together, and we're just we're in a large circle and praying for the body and praying for things, and, and as we were praying, we are all, you know, have our head bowed, and all of a sudden we are... And, you know, you kind of sheepishly raise your eyes, you look around, and we look, and it was the guy who called the prayer meeting <laughs> who was sleeping. So that's not an uncommon problem. It's not surprising that Scripture constantly says, stay awake when, you, when you're praying. But there's more to this concept than simply not sleeping. Watchfulness not only refers to not sleeping, but also to constant spiritual alertness. We need to be alert and aware of what needs to be prayed about in our prayers. That's the way Peter uses the term in 1 Peter 4, 7 when he said, Be sober-minded and watch under prayer. He is saying, look for the things you ought to be praying about in life. Keep your antenna up. Listen to what's happening in people's lives so you can pray intelligently. The evil one, evil one wants to make us careless to ignore prayer or become distracted from it so that our minds wander, or get us preoccupied praying about the wrong things. You know what I'm talking about. This is a battle for all of us in the Christian life. One man said it this way, if you're going to be consistent, if you're going to pour out your heart, and if you're going to really pray for something, then you ought, you ought to know what to pray for. You'll never be persistent with God about something you're not concerned about, and you'll never get concerned about something until you know what you need to be concerned about. And he's, what he's referring to is what the, the kinds of things that God wants us to be praying about. So all of this is behind Peter's exhortation to us in 1 Peter 4, 7 about prayer. Let's go back to our text there in 1 Peter 4. <coughs> 
The second exhortation that Peter gives us in this text is in verse 8. He says, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter has already told us back in chapter 1, verse 22, he's already said this, he's already told us to love one another, but he doesn't mind repeating it because it's so important. We are to love one another fervently or deeply or earnestly. This word means to stretch to the limits, and it was used to describe a muscle that was pushed to its limits. Picture an athlete in the Olympics who is stretching and straining his or her muscle to its maximum capacity. That's the way we should love each other. We should love and love and love, and when we feel like we just can't love anymore, we should extend even more love. This is so important that Peter says here in verse 8, above all. Above all, we should love one another deeply. And then Peter adds an interesting statement. He says, for love will cover a multitude of sins. This is a quote from Proverbs 10, 12, describing the nature of godly love. Love covers sin. There are at least two things that means, and one, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that you cover up wrong when it needs to be exposed. In other words, we've all heard about cover-ups in situations when the right thing to do is bring it out in the open and deal with it. So Peter is not suggesting that we cover up sins and wrongs that need to be dealt with in the proper manner. However, one, one of the things he is saying is that love doesn't unnecessarily expose what doesn't need to be exposed. For example, if you have a friend or a loved one who is making sinful choices, you don't need to tell everyone about it. When you fall into sin, do you want people spreading it around to everyone else? No, you don't. Genuine love doesn't unnecessarily spread or broadcast the sins of others. That is why Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. You remember the next phrase? Between you and him alone. In other words, have enough love to deal with it privately and discreetly. Don't tell a dozen people under the guise of asking them to pray about it. Keep it private to the extent that you can. Love covers sin and doesn't expose it unnecessarily. That's one of the aspects of this statement, that love will cover a multitude of sins. But there's another nuance of meaning in this phrase, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 7, where it says, love bears all things. That word means to pass over in silence. Genuine love doesn't make an issue out of every mistake, every misstep, every wrong, every failure. Love doesn't point out all the wrongs someone has done to him or her. There are people who violate this in their marriage, and they wonder why they don't have a good marriage. Listen, God did not bring you into your marriage to point out every mistake, every misstep, every wrong, every failure in your spouse. That's not love. 
In fact, it's the opposite of love. If that's the way you function in relationships, then don't be surprised if you don't have good relationships. Love doesn't behave that way. Love bears all things. That is, love is willing to go the extra mile to pass over in silence the offenses of others. This is part of what verse 8 is referring to when it says, Love covers a multitude of sins. As I mentioned, this is not saying that there's no, there's no place for exhortation. The New Testament talks about that often. We need to exhort one another, admonish one another. This is not saying there's no place for confrontation or church discipline, but it is saying that love is not looking for wrongs, is not quick to see wrongs, and whenever possible will go the extra mile to pass over in silence the wrongs and offenses of others. Isn't that the way our Lord relates to us and to the world? The Lord could judge all of us instantly and immediately, and he'd be totally just and fair. But he is patient. He is long-suffering. He gives time for us to repent. In fact, it's remarkable that the Lord hasn't judged this world and all of us already. But his love is forbearing because that is the mark of genuine love. That's what love does. It bears all things. It covers a multitude of sins. So Peter tells us to have fervent love for one another. The third thing Peter tells us to be doing, to be ready for the end, is to be hospitable to one another. He says in verse 9, <clears throat> be hospitable to one another without grumbling. The word for hospitality in the Greek text literally means a love for strangers. It doesn't merely refer to having people over or into your home, though it certainly includes that. But the primary emphasis of the term is having a love for people who are not in your close circle of friends and family. Peter has just told us to love one another, and we might be inclined to think that this only means that we love the people who are close to us. So this exhortation broadens the scope, it broadens the circle to say, no, you don't just love the people around you. This is talking about loving those who are newcomers and welcoming those who aren't in your circle. It describes a heart that is tuned in to and sensitive to people who are new to the community or new to the church or new to your circle within the church. This certainly could involve having people into your home. It certainly does involve that, but it's not limited to that. It's not just talking about an action. It's describing a heart attitude that is warm and welcoming. In Peter's day, this probably involved housing traveling preachers and hosting the church meeting in your home because those were common aspects of the early church. So it may look different in every culture and in every era, but the important thing is that we make sure that we cultivate this kind of thought, thoughtfulness toward newcomers. Beloved, this is a significant reminder for us as a church family. As I'm sure you know, we regularly have visitors, and it's important that we cultivate a welcoming atmosphere to those who are new or those we don't know. And Peter reminds us to do this without grumbling or complaining. There's nothing commendable about being hospitable and warm and kind to newcomers, but then complaining about it. We need to have the right action, 
and the right attitude. That's Peter's third exhortation to us. Be hospitable without grumbling. His fourth and final exhortation in this section is found in verse 10. He says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. And again, I call to your attention the third use of the term one another here. This is clearly, this text clearly about body life, loving one another, being hospitable to one another, ministering to one another. So Peter says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The exhortation here is to minister your spiritual gift or, just to make it maybe simpler, minister to one another. The assumption behind this exhortation is that we understand what is taught elsewhere in Scripture concerning the fact that every Christian has been gifted by the Holy Spirit to be able to minister to others in the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul teaches that extensively in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. The point is this, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has given you a spiritual gift to be able to minister to others. Peter doesn't go into detail on that point, but he does mention it. And then he tells us to make sure that we are good stewards of that gift that was given to us. There are several spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. And I'm not convinced that that even if you combine all of them together, that it's an exhaustive list, because that wasn't Paul's point. His point was to give an, wasn't to give an exhaustive list. It was just to give examples, to say, listen, you are a gift to the body of Christ. Your unique contribution is important, so minister to other people. And he gives examples of different kinds of gifts. The examples he gives can be summarized in three categories. There are speaking gifts mentioned, there are serving gifts mentioned, and there are sign gifts mentioned. And one of the things that Paul emphasizes is that the gifts are given to us for the benefit of others. We haven't been given a spiritual gift for our own purposes. And not only own purposes, but what can become our own selfish purposes. Along these same lines, the Greek word for spiritual gifts emphasizes the fact that it is a free gift from the Holy Spirit, please hear this, not something that is to be earned, worked up, forced, or demanded. The Holy Spirit has given us, the Greek word is a grace gift. It's by grace. It's not something we demand. It's not something that we have to work up. It is a grace gift. The Spirit has gifted us to be able to serve others. And here, Peter says that we need to make sure that we do it. And maybe a little side note here. The, the point of the passage isn't, so don't get wrapped around the axle saying, oh no, i got to figure out my spiritual gift, and i got to do a survey and charts and do all of these tests. And no, the point is just serve. Just look for ways to serve. Serve, serve the Lord by serving people. Peter also reminds us here that the diversity of the gifts is an expression of the manifold grace of God. He says, he uses that phrase right at the end, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, none of us are the same, and the way we minister our gift won't look the same. And I might add, that's even true if your gift is the same as someone else's gift. If your gift is the gift of teaching, you don't teach exactly like someone else does, because it's a different personality, different gifting. 
So we're different. It's, we're all unique. And, and all of this diversity is an expression of the manifold grace of God. None of us are the same. The way we minister won't look the same. It's the beauty of diversity that God has planned for the body of Christ. But the main point here is to make sure that we are good stewards of the gift the Holy Spirit has given us, and the way to be a good steward is to minister to other people. Just find a way to serve. Find a way to minister to other people. And then Peter gives some examples, as Paul often did when he taught on this topic. Verse 11, he says, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion or the sovereignty forever and ever. Amen. It's interesting to note in this little text that Peter only mentions a speaking gift and a serving gift, but says nothing about sign gifts. Obviously, that doesn't prove that the sign gifts had ceased by this time, but it is an an interesting observation on the subject. Peter only mentions a speaking gift and a serving gift, but says nothing about sign gifts. And he tells us that when we minister our gift, when we minister to one another, whatever it is, we should do it in God's strength and for God's glory. If God has gifted you with a speaking gift such as preaching or teaching or wisdom or knowledge or encouragement or counseling, then you need to make sure that what you say lines up with God's words in Scripture. That's what Peter means when he says to speak the oracles of God or the utterances of God. The NIV says he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. That's a good way to say it. And then Peter says, if anyone ministers, anyone serves, he uses a very general term in Greek. So whatever the service, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. So he's saying, don't serve in your own strength or in your own wisdom or in your own way. Serve in the way God has instructed in his word. Do it his way and in his strength not in your own way and in your own strength. This is a warning to let us know that it is possible, please understand this, it is possible to misuse a spiritual gift in a carnal or fleshly way, which is sadly very common today with all the wrong emphasis within the charismatic movement of Christianity. Christians claim that they use their spiritual gift for their own edification. They say, I do this for myself not realizing how contradictory that statement is. They claim they do it for themselves instead of for the edification of others, and to do it for yourself is contrary to Scripture. So we are to exercise our gifts in God's strength according to His way, and that will result in His glory. That's why the last phrase here of verse 11 says that in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What that is saying is this. The purpose of our spiritual gifts, the purpose is to exalt and glorify God. 
We don't exercise our gifts to show off. We don't exercise our gifts to exalt self. We don't exercise our gifts to get patted on the back and commended. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful as we serve. And again, we see so much of this in so many Christian circles where there is such an emphasis on tongues and healing and miracles. There is a blatant showing off and exaltation of self. Now, I'm not saying that to pick on our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm saying it because it is true. Anyone with open eyes sees it. It's, it's true. It's, it's wrong. It's unbiblical. In fact, to take this a step further, please notice that Peter says nothing about the Holy Spirit in this verse. Isn't that interesting? He says nothing about the Holy Spirit here. And yet we know from other passages, it is the Holy Spirit who gives us spiritual gifts. So it wouldn't have been surprising. In fact, we probably would have assumed he would say something about the Holy Spirit. He says nothing about the Holy Spirit in this verse or in the previous verse, which talks about receiving a gift. He talks about God the Father being glorified through Jesus Christ. There is no mention of the Spirit because... It is the Spirit's role and the Spirit's goal to exalt the Father and the Son. In fact, think about it this way. It was the Holy Spirit who guided Peter to write this the way he wrote it. So you can even see in that the Holy Spirit putting himself in the background by the way he guided Peter to write these words. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to be in the spotlight. His joy, his role is to exalt the Father and the Son. Therefore, whenever you hear a Christian preacher or Christian church or a Christian group extolling the Holy Spirit, magnifying the Holy Spirit for supposedly giving out the sign gifts of tongues or healing or miracles, then you know for a fact that the Holy Spirit is not behind that. Let me say that again. Whenever you hear a Christian preacher or Christian church or Christian group or Christian ministry extolling and magnifying the Holy Spirit for supposedly giving out the sign gifts of tongues or healing or miracles, you know for a fact that the Holy Spirit is not involved in that presentation. He is not behind that. That is not the Holy Spirit's focus. That is not his desire. That is not his goal. His focus is to exalt the Father and the Son. And that should be our focus. To exalt the Father and the Son. How can we do that? Be serious in your praying. Love one another. Be hospitable to one another and minister to one another. That's how we can exalt the Father and the Son. Let's bow together in closing this morning. Let's think about our own lives in relation to what we have seen this morning. A very, very practical passage of Scripture where we are exhorted, encouraged to be ready for the end, to be living life ready for the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air? What do we need to do to be ready to be living life the right way? Well, we need to 
We need to have fervent love for, we need to be serious in our praying, have fervent love for one another, hospitable to one another, and ministering to one another. That's what God says. So the natural question that we need to ask ourselves is, how am I doing? Am I doing these things? How am I doing in prayer? How am I doing in love for one another? How am I doing in being a welcomer to those who are new? Being hospitable to one another? And how am I doing as ministering to one another? It's very simple, yet very profound. It's the way to live life, to be ready for when Jesus comes to take us home. Father, thank you for how very straightforward you are with us and very practical and how relevant your word is. We need these reminders of things that we know, things that are not new, not things that are not especially profound, except that all your word is profound. Thank you for this beautiful description of the normal yet supernatural Christian life that this is what we're to do. These are the things that are to characterize our lives. We are to be consistent and intelligent in our praying. We are to love one another fervently. We are to be hospitable to one another. And we're to minister to one another. May we as a church family be these things, do these things, not merely cranking them out in our own strength, but as Peter has reminded us, in the ability, the strength which God supplies. Remind us that whatever we do should flow out of our relationship with you, Father, our relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. That's the source of all that we do. And so may we do it for your glory. And as we close, we do want to pray, always want to be mindful of anyone here among us who doesn't know Christ and really to whom these things don't apply yet because they're not in the family of God, not in the body of Christ. We pray that you would be pleased to use something that has taken place this morning, maybe something from a song, something that was said, something that was prayed, just whatever it may be, to touch that person's heart so that he or she would turn to Christ today and embrace Jesus Christ and be a part of your family, Father. Be a part of the body of Christ. And then begin to live the way this passage outlines us to live. We lift these things before you as we pray together in the matchless, perfect name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.